0: We're in the middle of a series entitled Gospel According to John, and today we're going to ask and address the question, what is truth? No small feat, I can imagine. And the entire chapter 18 is the trial of Jesus, and I really wanted to read the entire chapter to you, but I figure me just reading it would um, miss a little something, so I've prepared a little bit of a reading for you with some visual images taken from a smattering of Jesus' movies all of them historically and ethnically inaccurate, I recognize. So please don't email me. No. Please email me. I'm totally game. It's totally fine. Um, But at least I want to give you a little bit of a sense of the setup for this one question that is asked that is going to be the focus of our time together. Having said these things, Jesus went forth with his disciples across the Kedron, which flows in the winter to where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who was handing him over, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, taking a detachment of soldiers and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, comes there with torches and lamps and weapons. Jesus therefore, knowing about all the things descending upon him, went forth and says to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. He says to them, I am. Thus, when he said, I am, to them, they stepped backward and fell to the ground. So again, he inquired of them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus replied, I have told you that I am. So if you are seeking me, allow these to go so that the word that he had spoken might be fulfilled, those whom you have given me, I lost none of them. Simon Peter therefore having a sword drew it and struck the high priest's slave and hacked off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword in its sheath, the cup that the father has given me, shall I not most surely drink it? So the detachment of soldiers and the Kiliarch along with the officers of the Judeans, seized Jesus and bound him, and led him first to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was that year's chief priest. Now it was Caiaphas who had advised the Judeans, It is expedient that one man die on behalf of the people. And Simon Peter and another disciple followed Jesus, and that disciple was known to the chief priest and entered along with Jesus into the chief priest's courtyard. But Peter stood outside at the gate. So the disciple who was known to the chief priest went out and spoke to the girl keeping the gate and conducted Peter in. So the slave girl keeping the gate says to Peter, are you not also one of this man's disciples? He says, I am not. And the slaves and the officers were standing there having made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them standing there and warming himself. So the chief priest interrogated Jesus concerning his disciples and concerning his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the cosmos. I always taught in synagogue and in the temple where all the Judeans congregate, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have listened to what I told them. Look, they know the things I have said. And as he said these things, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus a blow to the face, saying, This is how you answer the chief priest? Jesus answered him, If I spoke amiss, bear witness to the wrong. But if, well, why do you beat me? So Annas sent him bound to the chief priest Caiaphas. Now Simon Peter was standing there warming himself. So they said to him, Are you not also one of his disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the chief priests' slaves, a relative to the man whose ear Peter cut off, says, Did I not see you in the garden with him? So again, Peter denied it, and immediately a cock crowed. So they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was just before dawn, and they did not enter the praetorium, so that they should not be defiled, but might instead eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and says, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have handed him over to you. So Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. The Judeans said to him, It is not legal for us to kill anyone, so that the word spoken by Jesus indicating by what death he was about to die might be fulfilled. So Pilate went back into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, "'You are the king of the Judeans?' Jesus answered, "'Do you say this on your own, "'or did others speak to you about me?' Pilate answered, "'Am I a Judean? "'Your nation and your chief priests "'handed you over to me. "'What have you done?' Jesus answered, "'My kingdom is not of this cosmos. "'If my kingdom were of this cosmos, "'my subjects would have struggled so that I should not be handed over to the Judeans, but for now my kingdom is not from here. So Pilate said to him, are you then a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. I was born for this, and for this have I come into the cosmos that I might testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth hearkens to my voice. Pilate says to him, what is truth? And having said this, he went outside again to the Judeans and tells them, I find absolutely no case against him. This last image that you're looking at uh, is actually the place of Golgotha, what we believe to be the stone quarry where Jesus was actually crucified. So... Over the course of the last 10 years, Spark has had a focus of inspiring people to live the way of Jesus. And over the course of the last 10 years, we have talked about a variety of revolutions, a variety of ways in which we believe that the Jesus way has upended, transformed, and revolutionized particular ways of being in this world. So the first one is a power revolution. We have talked about the upside-down kingdom. We've talked about empire. Rome, of course, being the predominant image, picture, metaphor, um, the kind of the antithesis of the kingdom of God. And we have talked a little bit about how Jesus completely upends what we think about power and how power is supposed to work. There's a moral revolution uh, towards justice and compassion. And while particular ideas seem to push a particular ethic forward that is more about what you can gain, Jesus pushes forward an ethic and a moral that suggests that justice and Putting things to right and making sure that the compassion is core and central to your identity and your practice of your faith is part of uh, what it means. There's an economic revolution that happens. For those of you who are familiar with the early movement of Jesus, having learned this particular Jesus way, they start to see that the material things and the economic imbalances that exist are actually manifestations of a false worldview. And so in Acts, you'll see and read about stories of people selling everything that they have and giving to those who were in need so that there was nobody in their community who happened to be in need. And of course, perhaps at the fundamental base of this is a religious revolution that love should be central to everything that you do. And not just love as a nice hallmark idea, a nice slogan, or a bumper sticker, but love as the core and central lens of, filter, interpretive idea through which everything comes. So no matter how you practice your power, no matter how you practice your morality, no matter how you practice your economics, it should all be practiced based upon an ethic of love. So these, I hope, are somewhat familiar to Sparkers who have been with us for a period of time, and you can go back into the archives and Here are plenty of teachings where we try to articulate this, try to tease this out, and try to apply this to real-world, everyday situations. What I don't think we have talked about yet, and I tried to go back through the archives in my brain, but what I don't think we have talked about yet, is that I also believe that there happens to be, in the Jesus movement, an epistemological revolution. Now, for those of you who are tired of Kevin using big words, epistemology is just simply a big fancy word to mean the theory or the study of knowledge, or what is true. How do we come to know the things that we know, and what participates in that knowledge, and how do we actually have a sense of knowledge? And it is all summed up, essentially, In the question that Pilate asks, this one very short phrase, what is truth? Pilate said to him, are you then a king? He answered, you say that I was a king. And this line, this line is just kind of crazy when you think about all those other revolutions. I was born for this, and for this I have come into the cosmos, into the world, that I might testify to the truth. Inherent in the Jesus movement is a commitment to this idea, which is truth, and then follow up from that, everyone who belongs to the truth hearkens to my voice. So if you happen to be a person who is in pursuit of the truth, you will be somebody who actually will then pay attention to who Jesus is, or at least this is the claim. And then, of course, Pilate, in retort, and very sarcastically, and you can read this both in tone but also in picture that we saw him kind of like whatever what is truth as if to say truth doesn't really matter we're going to unpack this what is Pilate really saying there why is it included in the Jesus story and is it possible we could tease out an epistemological revolution in addition to all the other revolutions what do you think is true what do you think is right what kind of knowledge do you actually have And how is it relevant to your personhood and your followership of Jesus? Now, as soon as you talk about truth, there's a couple cultural references that seem to come to mind. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! So let's close in prayer. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, sorry, you can't handle the truth, so there's nothing really more to talk about. Uh, For those of you who know, um, many years ago, of course, there was the X-Files, and just that sound, just that sound, which kind of triggers, you know, trauma. um, But the whole idea was the truth is actually out there, which means that the truth is this hidden hidden mystery, of course, had to do with aliens and uh, abnormal, paranormal kind of phenomena. I was reminded of this particular quote by Mark Twain, if you tell the truth, you don't have to remember anything. Yeah, Which, actually, was that Mark Twain? I don't know, (laughs) I don't know, know. it doesn't matter. Maybe it was Mark Twain or not, I have have no clue. Um, This is actually quite serious, even though this is comedic. Um, Back in 2006, there was a gentleman on TV named Stephen Colbert who did a sarcastic parody of a conservative news host and he coined the word truthiness, and it became actually the word of the year in 2006 to describe a particular idea, which was, my feelings are what I believe is true regardless of its validity. And 10 years later, the Oxford Dictionary declares post-truth to be the, uh, year, uh, the word of the year, which, of course, Stephen Colbert, now in his new position, was ma- making fun of. It's like, ah, well, that's truthiness. Uh, you know, don't, don't take that away from me. So, my friends, what I'd like to do is instead of go through all the cultural references, we're going to do a little bit of philosophy, we're going to do a little bit of biblical study here. So what I'd like to do is tease out when the Bible uses the word truth, when Jesus uses the word truth, when we have carried that word through, what connotations, ideas, meanings are coming with that particular word? And if we can kind of coalesce a synthesized understanding of this word and this idea and then reapply it back to Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and Pilate himself saying, well, what is truth? Then I think we'll be able to walk away with a better understanding of how epistemology fits into the grand thrust of the Jesus movement. There are two main words. That we need to focus in on. The first one is Emmet, and I'm going to ask you to say this because we'll say this a couple of times. I want to have these words on your lips. Say Emmet. Yes. Emmet is the Hebrew word for the word truth, and the Greek word that is used in the gospel accounts that we um, just read is the word Aletheia. Everybody say Aletheia. Yes. Emmet. Yes. Emmet. Yes. Aletheia. Now this is important because Emmet we're going to get to later on. Alaphia is actually a name that some people have used, and we have a family here at Spark whose daughter was named Alaphia. And uh, every time she lied, I just laughed at her parents. Anyway, so, um, <laughs> just, just kidding, just kidding. If you go to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, they will tell you, of course, that it would be impossible to survey all there is to say about truth in any coherent way. Instead, this essay will concentrate on the main themes in the study of truth in the contemporary language, in the contemporary context. And they go through a variety of ideas and philosophical postulates. For example, one of them is called correspondence theory. Now, correspondence theory, these are big big, fancy words, but they're very simple. It just simply means, is the thing that you say actually true in real life? Is the thing that you say, can it be verified? (laughs) What? What? Why is that funny? Oh, yes, yes. Sean Spicer, the famous, Uh, statement uh, as the White House press secretary stated that this inauguration was the largest inauguration, period, of course. Correspondence theory is a way to evaluate whether or not that statement and that claim happens to be true. And the reason why you're laughing and the reason why it was false is because the statement that was said did not actually correspond to the reality that could be observed, the empirical reality, just the numbers themselves. This is one of the reasons why we actually reject a flat earth theory. It's not because people who believe in a flat earth are crazy or people who believe in a flat earth are somehow mentally ill. That is not the reason why we, dis, uh, we don't believe in a flat earth. We, we don't except a flat earth, because it doesn't correspond with reality. So, correspondence theory. The statement that you say must be empirically or objectively verified. If you say this, does it meet the actual observed reality? There's another uh, theory, another idea around epistemology, which is coherence theory, which means that the statement that you claim, the the thing that you say, must actually cohere with itself. For example, a dozen eggs is 12, yes? That would be coherence. And this reminds me of one of my favorite Irish jokes, where a gentleman was at the fair, bought a dozen eggs from this local farmer, and opened them up only to find 11 eggs. And it clearly sign said 12 eggs. And so he asked the farmer, he says, I, I thought these were supposed to be a dozen eggs. And you have to hear it in the Irish accent, which I will butcher, of course. Oh, yes, a dozen, 12, 12, 12 is definitely a dozen. dozen eggs, 12 eggs. Um, but there's only 11 eggs in here. Oh, yes, only 11. One of them was bad. I threw it away for you. <laughs> okay, never mind. Okay, coherence theory. The idea of... Thank you, Bob, for a little bit of applause. This takes me... <laughs> I guess none of you are Irish in here, so that was Irish. Here. So, coherence theory is that the number has to, the statement has to cohere with itself. There's another branch of philosophy that would suggest realism, the idea that things are actually real. This is a picture that I took with Danielle's brand new iPhone of the universe. It's amazing what you can do with these phones these days. But um, no, this is actually the cosmic microwave background imagery, the idea that there actually is a physical universe. There are actually particles in the universe that make up this universe. Uh, There is a branch of philosophy that would suggest that things aren't actually real, but simply constructs in our minds. The opposing idea would be, no, there actually is real things out there. And we can say that they are real. They are very real and material. So these are all various concepts, various ideas of what actually is the truth, empiricism and rationalism and making sure that things correspond and cohere, that things are actually real. And the reason why we have cataloged this, this, these and many, many more ideas of truth is because we have inherited a Greek, Hellenistic, philosophical tradition that goes all the way back to Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, and even the pre-Socratics way, way, way back, of trying to think about what really is the nature of truth, what actually is true. What is, in essence, aletheia? Say, "Aletheia." aletheia. What is aletheia? What actually is it? How can we actually know? Okay, concept number one, aletheia, correspondence, coherence, Philosophical truth, things are real, we can know them, we can verify them, we can calculate them, we can put numbers behind them, and the statement that you say can either be accepted or rejected based upon that evaluation. The other concept that exists in the textual and religious history that we have is this other word for truth, which is Emmet. Everybody say emet. Now, I'm gonna go through a couple passages where Emmet is used. Pay attention to how the word truth is used in these passages. Joshua chapter 24. Now therefore, revere the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your ancestors served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Which which word is the word emet for truth? sincerity. Sincerity, close. It's actually the word faithfulness. The word that is translated into your Bibles as faithfulness is actually the same word as the word for truth. And the contrast to the word faithfulness is faithfulness to the Lord versus idolatry, right? Versus the gods of your ancestors. So truth in this concept in Joshua 24 is not about an objective, verified, real, corresponding coherence. It is about your fidelity. It is about your ability to say, yes, this was my commitment, and yes, this is what I'm going to follow through with. Proverbs 8, 6. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. There it is again. There's that word truth. But notice, truth in this context is in contrast to wickedness. To be true or to be, to be a person of truth is to avoid the things that are going to be evil, wicked, bad. To be true is to be righteous, to be moral, to be upright. Malachi chapter 2, verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in integrity and uprightness, and he turned uh, away. He turned away. Boy, what was wrong with my typing? And he turned away. From iniquity, And there it is again. Truth, Emmet, is in his mouth, no wrong, and he walked in integrity away from iniquity. Truth, according to the biblical concept in the Hebrew scriptures that is carried through to Jesus' uh, world and concept, is about integrity, uprightness, is about what kind of character do you have. You'll see this word also emit, and I wanted you to say emit because some of you know the story of Jonah, who is the son of Amitai. Now, for those of you who don't know the language, you'll just skip over it. That was a nice detail. Amitai sounds like the word emit, which is son of my truth. Jonah is the son of my fidelity, my integrity, <clears throat> my ability to follow through and to have uprightness and character. And what is Jonah? The absolute opposite. The title of his name is part of the poetic conflict. Yona, dove, which is the symbol of the spirit and the messenger, son of my truth, the person, the son of my integrity, son of the, my character, my uprightness, my righteousness. And what does he do? He just ditches it all and can't even live. In his book, The Philosophy of Hebrew Scriptures, Yoram Hazoni writes this. In biblical Hebrew, that which is true is something that is reliable, steadfast, faithful. While that which is false is something that cannot be counted upon or which appears reliable but is not. There is no question, therefore, of truth and falsity referring to any kind of correspondence between speech and reality For in these cases, there is no speech involved. There are only objects and persons. This, my friends, is the general idea and concept of truth in the biblical passages. Something that is reliable, steadfast, faithful. Speech, the words that I say and how I act and how I behave are coherent. They are one. Fidelity. Believable, trustworthy, honorable. And then, of course, this is where we get our modern English word. This person is true. This person is somebody with whom we can rely upon. This is the same word, emmet, that you say every time you close out a prayer. Amen. Comes from the same root, same idea. So when you say amen, you're not just saying prayer done. You're saying, may it come to pass. Will the God that I have just prayed to now follow through with the thing that I have now prayed for? Will the thing that I have prayed for regarding my commitment, may it actually come to pass? May I have integrity and fidelity and commitment and loyalty and honorability in the thing that I just prayed for? And in all of these prayers, may it have integrity. This word Emmett also reminds me of some very painful time in history. The word Emmett is where we get our name, Emmett. And one of the stories, one of the ideas around Mamie Till's decision, for those of you who don't know this story, just look it up. Emmett Till was lynched uh, for being accused of making an inappropriate gesture towards a white woman um, in the South, of course, during a time of extreme racism and lynching and was just absolutely brutally murdered. And his mother decides to hold an open casket funeral because she wanted to let everybody see and everybody know what they did to my son. And it was that telling of the truth that started and continued and advanced the civil rights movement and more legislation and the fight for Racial and equal justice. And I find it to be more than poetically powerful that his name was truth. Emmett. So my friends, here we are. Through a Greek philosophical Western lens that we have inherited. Aletheia. Philosophical truth. It is corresponding truth. It is coherent. It is real. It can be empirically studied. It can be calculated. It can be added and subtracted and verified. But then you have this whole other idea of truth, this additional epistemological revolution, which is, sure, you can know things. Sure, you can verify the facts. But are you the kind of person with the kind of character, integrity, commitment, honorability to live out that very truth? And does your life actually adhere with the words that are coming out your mouth? Does your behavior cohere with your stated convictions and integrity? And when we apply this, the reason why I wanted you to hear all of the story that was leading up to Pilate's question, what is truth? All along the way, there are two things happening. There's Aletheia, the confession of who Jesus is, the asking of the objective question about Jesus' identity, and then there's also Emmet, or should I say, a violation of Emmet. People who say that they are a part of the movement, like Peter, and yet fail. And the reason why that story is being told, leading all the way up to Pilate's question, what is truth? is because the narrative is itself an explanation of the very question that Pilate is asking. What is truth? What does it really matter? The people in the yards ask questions. Jesus answers, I am. But yet, if that happens to be true, they follow through with a completely different objective. Annas, Caiaphas... And then, of course, Peter, who denies. These are all actions and activities in this narrative that are illustrating the very opposite of the very kind of truth that the Jesus way was attempting to advance. And then culminates in this gentleman by the name of Pilate. This is one of the first and only pieces of archaeological evidence that we have. You can see Pilatus on this engraved dedication stone found at Caesarea. And when... Pilate, finally, is the culmination of this. We start to see that there's two different kingdoms, right? Pilate keeps asking, so you're a king, you are a king. And that happens to be true. Jesus is a king, and he keeps, I love the the, the rhetorical twist. It is you who say it, Pilate. You're the one, so, okay, so you said so. And one of the responses that Pilate gives is, okay, so you are the king, fine, who cares? Because I've got the power. And one of the things that's happening here, part of the reason why Pilate asked this question is because he is both the antithesis and the enemy of the very truth that Jesus embodies in this drama and the fulfillment of his own question. What is truth? I don't need truth. Truth is irrelevant. I'm the governor. I have the stamp of Rome. Who needs truth? Who needs Alephia? Who needs Emmet? I get to make the decisions. So he answers, what is truth anyway? And this is when Jesus basically says, I am the truth. Which is a very difficult kind of phraseology because we think of truth as this abstract concept. So how can that be embodied in a particular person? Because we have only understood Alephia. We haven't understood So in this particular sense, this conflict in this discussion is declaring that Jesus is both the declaration and the embodiment of truth. He declares the truth by bringing to light the real, coherent, corresponding truths of the real world, of real people's lives. He is telling the religious folks all throughout his story, his ministry, what they are doing, what the reality is, what the truth of the matter is. But he is also faithful, diligent, trustworthy, dependable, and dependable to follow through, to fulfill and make good on his commitment. Yes, I will drink this cup. Yes, I will follow through. Yes, I have come to redeem and to save, and that is what I'm here for. Pilate doesn't need truth. Faced with a man who is himself the very embodiment of this truth. And that, my friends, I propose to you is one of the ways which we can understand why in the world Jesus said, I am the truth. And if you only think of truth through the lens of Aletheia, through the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, you might miss it. Because what Jesus is also saying is, watch my life, how I live. It is coherent with the very teachings that I proclaim. And when I say, love your enemy, look at the cross. When I say, pray for those who persecute you, look at the garden. Watch me. The words that come out of my mouth are coherent with the life that I live. I don't think there's much controversy in our current socio-political context that we are living through an epistemological crisis. Probably all around the news for many years now, there's been serious questions about truthiness, alternative facts, what happens to be real, the size of an inauguration crowd. We have gone over and over and over, lies and lies and mistruths and misinformation and and conspiracy theories, and we are just swimming in that. And it's a problem. You can read plenty of articles, from sociologists to journalists to philosophers, talking about this problem, this epistemological problem that we have. We don't even know what is true anymore. But I would propose to you the reason why we have this is because we also have another problem which is another truth problem, which is the trust problem, is that the lives that we actually live, when we say that we care about democracy, when we say that we care about the church, when we say we care about certain things, do our lives actually live into it? And part of the problem is we have a bunch of people in the world that will state particular ideas and convictions and commitments using words and phraseologies that, sure, maybe all of us would agree to, but yet when you look at how they live, there's no emmet. There might be a Lathea. I, I, I agree with that. But how you're living, how you behave, how you live that out, how you're acting is not in correspondence with that truth that you say, that you claim. Truth, my friends, in this revolution is a bringing back together of the corresponding rational. Empirical, philosophical truth of Aletheia with the profoundly committed, highly integrous. I know integrous isn't a word. I'm going to use it anyway. The highly, with a lot of integrity. There's got to be a different word for integrity. Honorable, trustworthy, faithful, dependable. Dependable. The thing that I say, I will follow through with. If I say that I'm committed, I'm committed. And what we're missing is the marriage of those two. You guys know this. I mean, this is this is for crying out loud the world that we live in. And in and politics and society, we can't either we can't get either right. We can't we can't do either one of these. And this, my friends, is why I think the question, the drama, the narrative of Jesus and Pilate is so still critically important. We have to understand, yeah, what is truth? Well, according to Pilate, who cares? Kingdom of power, you don't need it. But if you if you are a follower of Jesus, you care about both Alephia and Emmet. You care about both. I am reading a terrifying book. I haven't read too many terrifying. I mean, one of my terrifying reads was *The Uninhabitable Earth* by David Wallace Wells on climate change. That's terrifying. This is the other terrifying book that I'm currently in the middle of: *How Fascism Works* by Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale. Look at the first four. Chapter titles The Mythic Past, Who Needs Truth? Propaganda, Anti Intellectual Unreality. And then Hierarchy, Victimhood, Law and Order, Sexual Anxiety, Sodom and Gomorrah, Arbiat Mach Frey. These are all phraseologies that are pointing to this very idea. We don't need actual history, we can create a mythic past. We don't need actual principles, we just need propaganda. So, we, so we're missing all the aletheia. We're missing the actual truth. It's part of the reason why there's so much controversy around the 1619 projects. It's like, we don't need the truth, we need our mythic past. Anti-intellectual, oh, you're just being elite if you want to actually pursue the truth or understanding. And unreality, well, we'll create our own. So part of the crisis of fascism is actually a crisis of truth, which is, just by reading the... the, the table of context, a crisis of both Aletheia and Emmet. You know, Spark is very much concerned, involved, engaged with the climate and ecological crisis. We are paying attention to what's happening in um, Egypt during the COP, the Conference of the Parties this year. And we're missing, depending upon your particular circle, the Aletheia part. Some people are just flat out, I don't need to know the truth. But then there's a whole other level of this. Which is, okay, it's it's happening, it's us, it's bad, we need to reduce our carbon, we need to get off fossil fuels, the entirety of the entire thing. But then, but then, there's this other piece, which is the Emmett piece, which is, if we say that we have been responsible, if we say that rich nations, rich countries have done the vast majority of the polluting of the world, and developing nations and poorer nations are suffering the vast majority of the climate impacts, where's the Emmett, where's the follow through with that statement of truth? And at most of the conferences now, the discussion is not about, should we reduce fossil fuels? That's like, that's a Aletheia, it's done, we know we need to. The big question is, will rich countries actually follow through with what they actually stated they would? Which is, we were part of the problem, and now we will be part of the solution. The question is, Emmett is missing. Faithfulness, fidelity, integrity to that conversation. I find this to be hair pulling, when it comes to reparations, this isn't something that we've talked extensively about. Uh, I've been reaching out to, uh, uh, to one of the authors of the book, Reparations. I mean, I don't think I've heard too much. I'm sure that there's somebody out there, but I haven't heard too much regarding the Aletheia question. Yes, we know that lynchings happen. Yes, we know about Jim Crow. Yes, we know about racial injustice. Yes, we know about all these things. So there's not too much of a question of Aletheia. But the reason why reparations is still still such a difficult, challenging subject is because of Emmett. Sure, we can say it's true. Where's the follow through? Where's your faithfulness? Where's your actual integrity? If you are benefiting from a system that has marginalized, devastated, brutally murdered others, do we not have a responsibility? And is repair not the way that we would do that? I know I'm getting it. My Q group, my small group, wants to talk about effective altruism Some coming up. Pretty soon, So we're going to talk about effective altruism. I grabbed this picture of the play pump, which is supposed to be this wonderful example of a wonderful thing. Anyway, I'll tell you about that later. But philanthropy is a very similar idea. In effective altruism conversations and circles, they talk very much about, we've got the Emmet. We're there. We care deeply. We want to help. We want to make the world a better place. But yet, because of passion and emotion and availability... And the things that I care about, we sometimes don't have the aletheia down. We actually haven't done the analysis as to what actually is going to make things good. We just start to give money because we're emotionally... So effective altruism, one aspect of it, is to try to improve our truth-telling on the aletheia side when we have truth on the emet side. This, my friends, can be applied all across the board, all over the place. And this is what I'm suggesting is the epistemological revolution of what it means to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is, my friends, the epistemological revolution as a commitment to both the philosophical truth and a convicted discipline to embody the truth, to incarnate it. This, my friends, is why truth matters, why Pilate can dismiss it and why Jesus says, I am that truth. If you want to know what truth is, look at me, Jesus says. Because I will be the embodiment of it all. We need both Emmett and Alethea. Emmett and Alethea. And in Jesus, we get both. And so as followers of Jesus, we pursue both. Hand in hand, arm in arm, heart in heart, together. That is how we advance the epistemological revelation. We're going to shift to a time of communion, my friends, and we're going to invite you to partake Of the juice and of the bread. And it is in this symbol, once again, the coming together of the fact of the history of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But it is also an embodiment of Jesus' faithfulness to follow through with the redemption and the saving of the world. To ingest within ourselves, once again, fidelity, trustworthiness. A God that followed through, a God that was true. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. My friends, as we sing, please come to the table, for all are welcome.